it occurs to me that, you know, for me, I've lived my entire life uh, really with a freedom uh, from fear. If you think about it, uh, many of these kids that will receive these gifts are kids that are uh, kids of refugees who have to fl- flee their homes and go someplace because bombs are coming down and so forth. And I, I just think about, you know, how blessed we are here in America, the, f- the, the freedom from fear. I don't think I really even had a twinge of fear in terms of a political or physical sense until 9-11 happened. And for the first time in my life, I thought, wow, there are people who hate America. There are people who are going to try to destroy America. There are people who would kill me if they had the chance, and so on and so forth. never really thought much about that growing up as a kid. But these kids who received these gifts. And I thought, you know what? Um, freedom from want. I don't know that I've ever missed a meal uh, in my entire life, right? And so uh, freedom from want. And I think about these kids who are going to receive these gifts and just the, the needs that they have in their life. And uh, one of our missionaries was telling us, you know, the, the drops of food for the refugees, um, uh, they, they'd have like three days worth of food that has to last a month. And so what would they do and how would they stretch it out? And so freedom from want. And then, uh, you know, for me, uh, freedom of speech. Uh, I get to say whatever I want. And I don't have to worry about anybody shooting me, you know, this morning, I hope. And... Um, <laughs> But freedom of speech, as, as Americans, you know, we enjoy that, right? And then freedom to worship, the freedom of religion. Think about how many people around the world don't experience that freedom. And I would say, you know, it has a lot to do with the sovereignty of God. Acts chapter 17 says God chooses where we live and who our parents are going to be. And, you know, it's not just willy-nilly that there's a plan, there's a design, the whole thing. chooses what age we're going to be here, uh, you know, uh, over the course of history and so on and so forth. But in addition to the sovereignty of God, there are many veterans uh, who sacrificed a great deal for us to enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy every day, even here this morning, to worship. And there's many uh, men and women who sacrificed their lives so that you and I could enjoy the freedoms that that we have. And uh, I'll never forget, I was with my dad one time, who's a veteran, and um, we had to go to the hospital. We went to the Veterans Hospital down in Florida, and we went into this hospital that had a foyer that was, you know, about, I would say, three times the size of this sanctuary, and it was just filled with people who had broken bodies. I mean, people missing limbs and couldn't walk, half a face, no arms, uh, and, and I thought, for the first time, it really hit me, like, wow, there's a lot of people who sacrificed so that we could have these freedoms. And uh, I don't know about you, but, you know, sometimes I feel like they're being squeezed, right? I mean, things are happening that begin to kind of challenge some of our freedoms. And so... Um, All that to say, Veterans Day this uh, Tuesday, remember our veterans. Remember the people who fought and who sacrificed and those who gave their lives so that we could live the life that we live and enjoy the life that we enjoy. Uh, It's it's, uh, such a gift, I think, to live in America as a Christian especially. Uh, That ISIS group, you know, the Christians and the Jews are their target, and that's who they're cutting the heads off of. And uh, we live here in America. We're privileged uh, really beyond our understanding, I think. Okay, well, I wanted you to know, my name's Dave DeVries, and I approve of this message this morning that I'm bringing to you. You I just want you to know, because the truth is, we're in fact talking together about the message that comes from God. Okay? The message that comes from God. And it's so perfect, so complete, it's so different, it's so unlike any other message we ever have heard, that the Bible calls God's message to us news. News. It's called the gospel which just translated means good news. The message from God is news. If you think that the message from God 
is determined by something you already know or you think you know, you're wrong. The message from God is news. You don't know it. Somebody has to tell you this. The message from God is news. It wouldn't be news to you if you already knew it, right? And the message from God is surprising. It's different. It throws you off. It makes you reinterpret reality. That's what news does. So the message from God is news. It's bad news, and it's good news. The bad news is you were born separated from God. Now, somebody's got to tell you that. Because, you know, nobody goes and, you know, somebody has a baby, and you go there, and you look at the baby, and you say, wow, there's something wrong with this kid. They're separated from God. They're in deep weeds. Nobody says that. Nobody thinks that. The kid doesn't think that. The parents don't think that. The parents will figure it out as time goes by. But there is something wrong, and this kid is not connected to God, right, you know, and so on and so forth. But somebody's got to tell the kid. Somebody's got to say, listen, you were born separated from God. Some things happened before you came along, and uh, as a result of that, you are who you are, but the bad news is you're separated from God. The good news that comes from God is that God fixed everything that's wrong between us and him through sacrificing his son on the cross, putting all of the stuff that's wrong with us on him, and then proving that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice by bringing him back from the dead and raising him uh, three days after he died on the cross. The good news is that Jesus was crucified for us, and God accepted his sacrifice and fixes everything that's wrong between us when we believe him. Um, It's really good news, and it's all based on grace. And so... The message from God is news. I don't know if you've thought about that lately because most religions, the message is good advice, not good news. Most religions, every other religion besides Christianity is not good news, it's good advice. Christianity is good news. And God's message is not so much a game plan on how to live as it is a report on what God has done and what God has achieved, and what God intended from the beginning of time. Now, don't get me wrong. There's lots of good advice in the Bible from God. There's lots of good advice. The only problem is the good part of of the good news is not in the advice. The problem with the advice is nobody has the power to live it. The problem with the advice is that as God gives it, nobody can actually live up to it. And so it becomes bad news. It's part of the bad news side. Um, The good news is not contained in the good advice part. The good news is contained, the big news, is that God gives grace. And so the book of Galatians that we're studying is all about protecting the message of God. It's all about making sure that the message of God doesn't get polluted or confusing or, you know, um, infected with other ideas, because that's what was happening. Um, And it's so personal to Paul, who wrote this, um, he's so upset about it it's so because it's so personal to him that the apostle paul actually says you know um i am who i am because of the grace of god because of the good news of god uh, I, because of the grace of god i am who I am. my whole identity is wrapped up in this so if somebody's going to mess with the news i'm going to be all over it like white on rice man i'm just going to do everything i can to stop it and that's what galatians is really all about and so In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to Romans. Remember, Romans is kind of a well-thought-out Galatians. The same basic content is in Romans that's in Galatians, but in Romans it's like a a whole treatise where in Galatians Paul's just like holistic about what's going on. But in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, we read these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it 
is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to us Gentiles. It is the power of God unto salvation, right? And so, again, the good news is about salvation. The good news is delivering us from the bad news. But lots of people don't even understand what the bad news is. And so, in Galatians, uh, this morning, we come to a question that the Apostle Paul wants to ask. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1, he asks this question. He wants to know, who has bewitched you? Who has tricked you? Who has lied to you? Who has deceived you? Who's confused you? You Galatians, when you first heard the message of the gospel, you embraced it. And you started living by faith. And now you're slipping away from that and you're starting to try to live by your own efforts. Who tricked you? Who bewitched you? And that's the question Paul wants to know. He says, how could you be such knuckleheads? He says in chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians. In the Greek, that means, how can you be such a knucklehead? That you would start with God... And let somebody else besides God influence you away from him. How could you do that? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And so Paul has already shown in chapter 2 that the only way a person can ever be right with God is by not trusting in their own efforts, but by trusting in what God has done in Christ, which creates an entirely different motivation for living. This is how you can tell what you trust. You can just ask yourself what you're motivated by. You can tell very quickly, very easily, you know, whether you're trusting in what God has done for you or you're trusting in your own efforts by simply asking what motivates you. Because once you trust in what God has done for us, you're no longer motivated by fear. You're motivated by love. Why would you want to obey God? Well, if you're motivated by the law, you're saying, well, I got to do what God wants me to do or he's going to get me. I'm scared to death that he's going to, you know. And so I got to do, and it's all fear-based. There are a lot of religions that are fear-based. Christianity is love-based. You know, in 1 John, which we're studying in the men's Bible study, 6 o'clock on Thursday mornings, fear and love are opposite each other. Love gets rid of fear, right? And so just ask yourself, when you are asked to do something by God, are you motivated by fear that God's going to not like you, and so you better do it, and shoot, I got to do it, and rah, rah, rah. Or are you motivated by love? My goodness, this is the best news that ever happened to me. And I'm included in it. And I'm accepted by it. And I'm motivated by it. I love this God who sacrificed his only begotten son for the likes of me. I don't know why, as LeVon said. I don't deserve it. There's not a thing in me that God gets as a result that's worth it. But I am so glad he did. See? Changes your whole motivation. Your motivation goes from guilt to acceptance. I'm not motivated by guilt. I'm motivated by the fact that the God of the universe accepts me once I believe in the gospel and this news that God accepts me through the blood of Christ like we've been singing about this morning. And no longer am I motivated by uncertainty like we sang about this morning. Oh, I hope I go to heaven when I die. But I'm motivated by certainty. I have absolute confidence because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on what God has done for me. And I live with this sense of certainty and confidence and relaxation and lack of anxiety that comes. Because why? Because God has accomplished for me what I could never do for myself. I'm no longer living by control, 
like God is trying to control me, but instead I live in the freedom of being loved and accepted and forgiven. And I am free to respond in obedience because I love him. You can tell where you're really putting your faith, whether it's in your own efforts or whether it's in what God has done for us because of Jesus Christ. So I would tell you that the Christian life is not about trying harder. It's about believing deeper. It's not about trying harder. It's about believing deeper. It's about this news that comes from God and taking that news and moving it from the peripheral of our lives into the very core of our hearts and saying, like Paul, I am what I am because of this good news. Because of the grace of God. Because of the gospel. Again, Romans, right? Romans 1, 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, it is the power of God unto salvation for everybody who believes. Where's the power? You know, I spent a, a good part of my life looking for it before I read this verse or before that verse jumped out at me. Right? When I was... Uh, I was just a kid in, I think, maybe fifth, sixth grade or something. There was this girl. Her name was Kathy Dennis. My wife's already heard about this. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> sixth grade, let's say, Kathy Tannis. And Kathy Tannis had a built-in swimming pool in her backyard. Her father sold concrete. He had a uh, sand pit with gravel and sand and so forth. And her father had dune buggies. And her father and brothers used to ride up and down the, the uh, sand pit and over the gravel piles and so forth in these dune buggies. And I got to thinking, you know what? If I could get Kathy to like me, I could swim in her pool and ride on her father's dune buggies. And all my friends would think I had power. And all of a sudden, I'd be important. So back in those days, that's like 50 years ago now, back in those, more than 50 years, back in those days, if you wanted a girl to notice you, what you did was you offered to carry her books home. We used to walk to school, no school buses, and so it was a long walk. She lived further than me, but I offered to carry her books home. And so over time, it took a long time, finally, you know, she's like, okay, I'm carrying her books home. I'm walking right past my house, all the way down to her house, you know, give her books, go back home, and so on. Finally got to swim in her pool, and finally got to ride on those dune buggies. And guess what I found out? It wasn't it. I thought that'd be it. I thought, wow, that'd be it. Man, if I could have that, that'd be it. It wasn't it. You know what happened to all my friends? They almost backed away from me. They were jealous. They didn't say, oh, wow, lucky you. They all just went all their ways, you know? So then I got a little longer, uh, further along in school and uh, got to the end of, uh, you know, like high school. And all of a sudden, what do you do next? And it's like, oh, my goodness. Um, all my friends are going to college. I guess I, I got I to gotta get into college someplace. Well, I was so busy riding dune buggies and swimming in the pool that, you know, that was a challenge. And so I thought, you know what would be it? If I could just get accepted into college, that'd be it. That'd be it. I just I gotta go to college someplace. Well, I found this Christian school that accepted me on probation. <laughs> That's how I got into college. Right? And so um, and then I got to college and I thought, you know, after like two weeks of trying to read all these books and everything, I'm like, this isn't it. <laughs> this isn't it. Then I got to thinking, you know what, if I could just graduate from this place, that'd be it. You know, just get out of here. That would be really it. So I hung in there. You had to maintain a certain GPA in order to stay and was able to hang in there. Second year, I go back, and there's this other girl. Her name is Barbara. Shows up on campus, okay? So now I'm like, you know what? You know what would be it if I could get that girl to notice me? 
that would be it, right? So I could tell you if I had time how, we, how I did that with the first date and all of that kind of stuff, and it's kind of a fun story, but don't have time. Anyway, got her to go out with me and, and so on and so forth, and over the years, uh, three years, uh, we decided, you know, I, I said to myself, if I could get this girl to marry me, that would be it. I'd be set for life. And I gotta be careful here because that was almost it. That was almost it. That was almost it, right? I see it. And then, you know, uh, we had a Corvette thrown in there and I thought, oh, if I could get that car and have this girl, that would be it. I'd have everything. That was almost it, you know? And so then after school, we got married and so forth. And then it's, you know, oh, if I could only get a job so that I could take care of this girl, that would be it, you know? And, you know, and a house and kids and, you know, all of that and so forth. And, and then I came across this verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it, it, it is the power of God for salvation from everything. Just think about this, right? The gospel, the good news from God, will save you from everything that's wrong with life. Even death. It's good news that will save you from even death because it's about eternal life. It'll save you from um, guilt. It'll save you from feeling um, insecure. It'll save you from feeling insignificant. It'll save you from... um, Feeling powerless, it'll save you from insignificance. It'll save you from believing lies, because it comes with the truth. It'll save you from hopelessness. It'll save you from uncertainty. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It, that's it. That is it. It is the power of God. The power's in the message. The power's in the news. No wonder Paul is so ballistic in Galatians to say, don't you mess around with the news from God. Don't you dare pollute the good news and lead people astray. Now, I have to tell you, Paul is writing to Christian people. Paul had already been there, and he'd already led these people to Christ, and they got involved, you know, by believing the truth, and they started this relationship with God. And it was just like me. I became a Christian when I was seven years old. I was at Word of Life Camp up at Scroon Lake, New York, you know, going to the ranch, the little kids thing, like these kids were up here. And I gave my life to the Lord at seven years old. But, you know, I was still looking for it. By the time I'm in college, I'm still looking for it. And it's possible to be a Christian and still be looking for something else to be it when we don't realize what we're sitting on. Because why? Because some false teachers have come along and they've polluted the message, and we don't understand how powerful the gospel really is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. For it is the power of God to change everything, to deliver us from everything that's wrong with life. It is the power of God, the powers in the message. And so it's so important. And so Paul goes on here in Galatians, and he says, you know, you knuckleheaded Galatians, Who has bewitched you? Why would you ever listen to somebody over God and the news that comes from God? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul says, when I came to town and I preached the gospel for you, I told you he died on the cross for your sins. 
And he says, let me ask you only this. I got one question for you. Did you receive the spirit of God by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did you get into a relationship with God? What if the gospel is not just the means to get into a relationship with God, but the gospel is the means of growing in a relationship with God? We don't get into a relationship with God through the gospel and then have to depend upon ourselves to make it work. And Paul is saying, you know, think about how you established your relationship with God. He said, you know, did you receive the Spirit by working for it or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Are you such a knucklehead, he says. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by your own efforts in the flesh? You think that's how you advance in the Christian life, by working harder instead of believing deeper? And that's what Galatians is all about. And Paul is ballistic about it because that's what was happening to people. They were beginning to think about that. And, you know, that changed everything. If you take your focus off the perfect plan of God and try to improve it, if you try to add something to God's perfection, Paul's like, what's wrong with you? It'll change everything. You'll go from being free to being in prison. You'll go from having this wonderful freedom of the good news that comes from God and living and enjoying the good news of the gospel to being trapped and in prison and trying and not being able to succeed and all the rest that comes along with the wrong focus. And I'm here to tell you it gets worse. It gets worse than that. Because if you don't believe and rely on God's message for your salvation and in any way you rely on yourself being a good person... And I've told you many times, if you talk to people in Fairfield County and you sit down and talk with them and you say, hey, do you think, you know, when you die, you're going to heaven? And most people will say yes. And then you say to them, well, on what basis do you think you're going to go to heaven? 90% of the people over my years of ministry have said, because I'm a good person. Because I'm a good person. That's what people really think. Like nobody's brought them the news. Nobody's told them the good news. And so, you know, Paul, he's like, you know, that's not going to happen. And um, he, he begins to explain. He says, look at this, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Everybody that I've talked to that says they're counting on being a good person is under the curse of God. Somebody's got to tell them. Hey, here's the news, pal. A curse. If you rely on being a good person and contributing, you know, to your own salvation, I got really bad news for you. You're under a curse. It's not going to happen. James chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us why. Um, In James chapter 2 verse 10, he says, Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for the whole thing. God's laws are so perfect that you can't just say, well, you know, I keep like 70% of these things and I'm only off on 30%, and so I'm a good person. God says, no, the standard is the whole deal. You break one law, you might as well break them all. In God's eyes, he's that holy. He's that different. And he made us to be like himself. And so James says, you know, he tells us that. He said, you know, uh, if you just break one, you're guilty of all. I don't know how many of you took me up on my offer last week, but I encouraged you at halftime of whatever favorite football game you were watching to take out your Bible, read Exodus 20, and evaluate yourself on the Big Ten Commandments. The Big Ten. They're the Ten Commandments. And just rate yourself on one to ten. You will find that you failed on every one of them. And then when Jesus came along, when Jesus came the first time, you remember Jesus? Jesus came, and in Matthew 5 and 6, 
Jesus said, let me tell you what the Ten Commandments are really about. They're about the character of God. And, and Jesus says things like this. Well, you have read that it says, don't murder somebody. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've already murdered him in God's eyes. Like Jesus raised the standard of the Ten Commandments like they're on steroids now. I mean, it's just like, they're, they're way up here. Nobody can, live, nobody can live up to those. And Jesus laid it out in no uncertain terms, you know, um, that nobody is going to be able to live like that. And so in verse 11 of Galatians 3, uh, look what he says. He comes to, Paul gives the conclusion here. He says, it's evident. It's evident. In other words, everybody should be able to realize this. It is evident that no one will ever be justified before God by the law. It's evident. Just take the Ten Commandments, sit down, rate yourself one to ten. You know, if you give yourself all tens, then just go to Matthew 5 and 6 and go a little further, and all your tens will go down to ones. Right? And James, and when he's talking about this, he's talking about partiality, how we like some people and we don't like others, and how that's a sin. And who doesn't do that? And so on and so forth. And so, but a long time ago, you know what God did? God went to a guy by the name of Abraham way, way back in Genesis, chapter 12. In Genesis, the human race was just getting going. The human race was just getting started. History was just, you know, beginning to get going way back in, in Genesis. And God goes to this guy, Abraham, and he makes him some promises. You remember this? It's pretty important because it's really the theme of the entire Bible is a promise-making God looking for people who will believe him. I mean, that's really when the news comes, who's believing what he's telling us? And so he goes to this guy, Abraham, and he says, you know, and Abraham doesn't even have any kids yet, and he's like 100 years old. And God says, I'm going to make a nation out of your offspring. And uh, Abraham believes God. And the Bible says, you know, he has no reason to believe because nothing rational would say that. His wife has been barren and he doesn't have any kids and he's 100 years old and she's almost 100. She's 90-something and so on and so forth. And so, but Abraham believes God. And, of course, out of that comes a nation, the nation of Israel, right? And uh, God fulfills his promise to Abraham. And then God makes an even more spectacular promise. He says, out of that, out of you, out of that nation... I'm going to bless every other nation in the world. Every other people group in the world is going to be blessed by you, Abraham. And Abraham believes God. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. But God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. And that was Abraham, right? And so what happens? Jesus Christ is born out of the nation of Israel from the seed of Abraham and the seed of David and the seed of Judah and so on. And, and Jesus comes and Jesus becomes this blessing to every single nation in the entire world. That's what's going on today. It's why we're into missions. It's why we're sending uh, Christmas shoeboxes to different places around the world to introduce people to Jesus, who is the blessing that God promised to Abraham way back in the very beginning of time. And uh, and then, of course, uh, God, you know the story, right? God sort of incubates the nation of Israel in the nation of Egypt. And they grow and gain some strength and so on and so forth. And eventually God raises up this guy Moses who leads the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. God gave a piece of land that he designated for the nation of Israel. And that is still being contested today. You can turn on your TV any week and you can read about what's being fought about, the land of Israel that God promised to this nation. It's still being contested today. And through Moses, God gave the Ten Commandments. These are the, this is the way I want you to live. And then in Deuteronomy, <clears throat> in Deuteronomy, uh, after, you know, the people leave and so forth, in Deuteronomy, God comes to the people uh, through Moses, and uh, God says something that I think needs to be heard today so, so, so much because of 
our technology because of blogs and tweets and Facebook and this and that. And, that. and Moses says to all the people there, verse 9 of chapter 27, Deuteronomy, keep silent and hear. Shut up and listen. Stop talking. Stop sharing what you think. And listen to the message of God. Stop saying what you think God should think and what God should say and what God should be like and listen to God. He's a message-speaking God. And he's given us these Ten Commandments. And so in Deuteronomy, um, after this, you can read, I'm not going to take time to read, but in chapter 27, you know, Moses, on God's behalf, speaks a bunch of curses, a whole, the whole chapter worth of curses that will come upon the people if they don't listen to him, if they do their own thing, if they're stubborn and they refuse to listen. All these things, all these curses come upon these people. Verse 26 kind of sums it up. He says, cursed be anybody who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people said, amen, we're going to do it. Then, verse 28, uh, chapter 28, verse 1, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, then I command you today, then the Lord your God will set you high above all the other nations of the earth. Is that what happened to Israel? Would you like to be an Israeli? Would you like to have gone through the Holocaust? Would you like to have been spread around all the different Nations where you couldn't understand the language? Would you like to have been treated like the Jews have been treated? Anti-Semitism for years and years and years and years? Put out of your land for how many years? Until 1948? When they finally came back to the land and were witnessing what the Bible prophesies about the return of the people and so forth. But in the meantime, they didn't listen. They were stubborn. They wouldn't listen and, and so forth. And so what happens to them? And so in, verse, in chapter 28, there's all these blessings that would come on them if they would listen. But when you get to the end of chapter 28, here's, here's what happened. They didn't listen. And so verse 45, and by the way, the Bible says that Israel happened as an example for us. Many places talk about the fact that what happened to Israel is an example for the rest of the world about how God operates, what he's all about. And so in verse 45, it says, all of these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you're destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes and that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you didn't serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness. Your heart wasn't in it. You might have done the technicalities. You took the Ten Commandments and made them into 500 laws and tried to live like that, but your heart wasn't in it. You lived by fear, not by love. You didn't understand why I gave you those commands, and so on and so forth. Skip on down to verse 58. If you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name of the Lord your God, then the Lord of God will bring upon you and your offspring um, extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, sickness grievous, lasting, and so on. Verse 64, and the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have ever known. And among these nations you'll find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart, failing eyes, languishing soul. Your life will hang in doubt before you. Night and day you'll be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you'll say, oh, I wish it was evening. And in the evening you'll say, oh, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And that's what happened. That's what happened to the people of Israel and so forth. And I, 
I could take you through the scriptures and show you how different periods of their history, the same thing. But when we get all the way to the New Testament in Romans chapter 4, uh, the Apostle Paul pulls this all together. And I just want to read a few verses here. He says, look, verse 13 of Romans chapter 4, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. These promises that God made to Abraham did not come because the people could live up to the Ten Commandments and up to the law. Nobody could do that, right? For if it is adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and void. Jesus would have died for nothing. We don't need the Son of God dying if there's a way that we could all measure up in God's eyes and be who God created us to be. But if it's the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs of, of these promises, then faith is null and void, for the law brings wrath. God gave the law, nobody could live up to it. It made God angry. But where there is no law, there's no transgression. Where there's grace, where there's undeserved favor, where all the consequences of the law have been taken away by the blood of Christ. And so verse 16, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to Abraham's offspring. How would you like to be guaranteed that when you die, we sang about it this morning, how would you like to be guaranteed that you know for sure that you'll be in heaven when you die? Because it doesn't depend on you. Because it depends on the finished work of God. And it was perfect. And God sent us the news that it was finished. And it's accomplished. And if you believe him, there's a guarantee. Can you imagine living your whole life not wondering if you're going to go to heaven when you die, but knowing for sure that's where you're going. Look what I, That's why it depends on faith, verse 16, in order that the promise can rest on grace, undeserved favor, and be guaranteed. Because that's how God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Abraham believed God, and the Bible says it was counted to him as righteousness. The righteous live by faith. They live by faith in the promises of God. And uh, Abraham is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Listen to this description of God, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist. That's a great description of God, isn't it? Our God gives life to the dead and call, he's a creator. He calls into existence things that don't exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Uh, as he had been told, so your offspring shall be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, and this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now here's for us. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours way back in Genesis, written for our sake. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The power of God is in the message of the gospel. Jesus crucified and risen again. And you know, you can tell if you're believing in that because in chapter 5, Paul goes on and he says, here's the characteristics, here's the things that mark the life of a person who's really put their faith in Christ and in this message and these promises from God. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace 
We have peace with God. It's a great thing to be at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not worried about him. We're not fearful of him. We have peace with God. That's the first characteristic. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we rejoice. We, we have joy. It even shows up on our faces sometimes. That a Christian people are people who should be filled with peace and with joy. Right? And he goes on. Even in our sufferings, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice even in our sufferings. We're crazy. We get all these afflictions and problems, and we're still rejoicing. We're different. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope never puts us to shame because God's love has been poured into us by the Spirit of God. We're marked by love. Peace, hope, joy, love. If you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table and you're asking everybody, you know, uh, how do you think about me? When you think about me, as somebody said, oh, you're, you're, I love being around you because you're full of peace and joy and love. You know, does that characterize your character? See, the Bible says that when we put our faith in what God has done for us and stop relying on trying to be somebody we're not, there's a freedom that comes into our lives that's huge. And... Um, and it comes to us uh, through the message of the gospel. And so, again, just in Galatians, if you go up to verse 7 in chapter 3, if you have your Bibles open, uh, know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This good news, the news from God, the gospel, the news was started way back in Genesis chapter 12, was preached to Abraham, okay? Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, uh, the man of faith. There are two ways that people are trying to relate to God today. Two ways that people are trying to live with God. They're either living with the curse of God or they're living with the blessing of God. And it depends on where you put your faith whether it's in yourself or whether it's in Christ. Either living with the curse of God or living with the blessing of God. And when you think about it, um, I would say to you, when you came to worship this morning, that's another thing that people who really are depending on faith in God, they love to worship. Wasn't it fun to worship this morning? Didn't you enjoy? I mean, people, you know, the rest of the world says, well, there's better things to do on Sunday. But for those of us who have put our faith in the living God, we love to worship, right? So when you came to worship this morning, I just want to close with this. When you came to worship this morning, when you think about the face of God today, when you think about coming right into God's presence in worship today, and, and, and you think about the face of God, what, what do you see on his face? Do you see a frown? Or do you see a huge smile? You see this God welcoming us as people who've been washed clean by the blood of Christ and sees us as his own sons and daughters and is so happy that we're here? Or do you think, oh, you know, I just didn't quite measure up last week and I should have done this and I should have done that and, you know, I should, yeah, I should, I should, I should. And, and, and you see the frown of God, like I'm going to worship him, but it's not that great of an experience. When you came to worship this morning, do you think of God as having his back toward you? Or do you think of him as having his full countenance and attention focused on you? 
It depends on whether you're depending on the good news of what God did for us and how happy he is to give it to us and share it with us and so forth, or you're somehow still depending on some human effort to add to God's good news. Because you'll see him with his back toward you. When, when you came to worship this morning, you, I would say you know, that he is either first, because he's the source of everything you desire, He's the end of your insecurity. He's the end of your insignificance. He's the end of your guilt. He's the end of your hopelessness. He's, he's like the end of lies and knowing the truth and having light in your life. And, he, and he's like the, the, the giver of all your best desires. And he's first because, wow, he's the most important in my life. Or is he last in my life because it just seems like the only time I pay attention to him is when he forces himself into my life somehow by some you know, tragic circumstance or something. I got nobody else to turn to, so I turn to God. And he's like, hey, I'm here. And we sort of set ourselves up for having to, you know, uh, be talked to like that. When, when, when life is over, and when you move over to the other side, what do you envision? Do you envision God waiting for you with a smile and with a blessing? Or do you envision him with a curse? Everybody's living with God either under a curse or under blessing. And what God is telling us here in Galatians is it all depends on what road you're living on. One road is called the law, and the other road is called faith. And the Apostle Paul is ballistic about not confusing the two. Galatians is written to people who started down the road of faith, like a lot of Christians, who thought that the gospel was the entry into a relationship with God, but didn't understand that the gospel is the power of God to deliver us from everything that we hate about this life and to fill us with rejoicing and love and hope and peace and all of those kinds of things. I'm so glad Paul is so animated about this because once the message gets polluted, our focus comes off of Christ, our joy depletes, our love depletes, and we're striving to try to do better and so forth when all the time we should be believing deeper. And I would say we always act on what we really believe. We always act on what we really believe. And so the way that we deepen our faith is we take what we believe and we act on it. And then when we find out that it works and we have that experience of God's power in our life, we stop looking for it someplace else. We found it and it satisfies and we're delighted. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that you're a speaking God. I'm so thankful that you have news for us, not just advice, because we can't live up to your advice. We know your advice is right. We know that you are the source of our life and you made us to, in your likeness and your image. But we can't, we just can't no matter how hard we try. And so I'm so thankful that the Bible just comes right out and tells us, listen, nobody's ever going to make it with you by being good. <laughs> it just takes the pressure off. But that you, Father, have really good news that you took everything wrong with us, put it on Christ, and let him become a curse for us, as Paul says in Galatians that the curse was taken off of us and put on Christ, and that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm doing what you wanted me to do. It's because he had the curse that was directed to us on him. And God caused him to become our sin so that we, Father, could be lifted by faith into a position of righteousness in your eyes. It's such a gift, it's hard for us to even believe. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, grab a hold of us and bring us deeper into this power 
of the gospel so that we could live, Father, and enjoy the privileges that are ours in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.